You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I'm joined by Ryan Miller. Ryan, welcome to the island. Thanks so much, Tony. It's uh, it's a nice island to be on today. Ryan, all the guests that uh, come onto Max's Island have an opportunity to tell that story of perhaps that time in their life where they went against the grain, whether that be personally or professionally, made a decision that was perhaps a little different to what's gone before or something in life just got in the way and changed the trajectory of where you're going. Have you got a time in your life where that may have happened to you and that perhaps has impacted your future life? Yeah, I think for me, and obviously we're talking about it before, I had a little think about it and I never thought I really went against the grain with any part of my career but I think the big one for me I I kind of realized was moving across to Sydney was obviously a big event in my life to go over there and chase my dreams of becoming a a TV broadcaster or a TV journalist and about seven months into my time at uh, it was Sky News. I realized I hated where I was. I didn't regret moving to Sydney, but I just didn't enjoy the environment that I kind of got myself into and I needed to make a change. And I was kind of like, oh, do I stick this out, get to 12 months? And a friend sent me a job advert for the GWS Giants in in the AFL and said, oh, this would be a pretty cool job. And I went, yeah, it would. And, um, and I applied and, and got it. And I think you know, there are a few people telling me, oh, well, do you really want to leave after nine months? It might not look good on your resume. Do you want to stick it out? Because things could get better. Uh, But in my heart of hearts, I was like, no, I I know this is not where I want to be. And I know what my passion truly is. And so I I decided to go for it. And and it's led to so many opportunities for me and, and meeting so many amazing people through the Australian rules football community and then uh, expanding my my career prospects to the the point of where I am now. So I, I think that was the thing that stuck out for me more than anything. Ryan, when you had that realisation that you perhaps were in an environment that you, you weren't happy with after a really short period of time, how was that emotionally? Did you feel like you'd either let yourself down 
hadn't tried hard enough or was it really about just the environment and, and there was a, this really clear realisation that maybe this wasn't for you? Yeah, the emotional impact of it was was pretty great. So I'll, I'll give a bit of context, I guess, Tony. So I, I worked uh, as a journalist in, in Perth at 6PR and got approached by Sky News to do an audition to be the Perth reporter and it didn't go as well as I'd hoped. I thought I did okay. Um, they said I was all right, but there was a colleague of mine at 6PR, um, Tadika DiGiorgio, who she was just polished. She was ready to go um, and she rightfully got the job and she's made the most of that opportunity and been able to stay in WA for most of her career. I think she might have moved east for a couple of years now to still be at, at Sky News. And they, as a result, offered me the opportunity to come over and be a digital and uh, on-air producer. So on-air producer being, uh, you know, deciding the news lineup that you would see on, on Sky News's bulletin. That, that roll across the day or when I was there, they were pretty much 24 hours a day with a, a little bit of programming. Uh, and then the digital side was to write some articles and put it on the Sky News website. So that that sounded great. Opportunity to move to Sydney uh, was one that I, I couldn't really turn down. I always wanted to move over east, mainly to Melbourne because of my love for Australian rules footy. And then I went, I'm not, I don't really like Sydney, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Let's take this chance because it's good for my career. Uh, it led to me being on essentially nights for the first month of my time at, at Sky News. And I'd work nights and overnight radio, early morning brekkie radio. So it wasn't anything out of the ordinary for me. But the issue is, is that as a 20, what was I, 24 years old, as a 24-year-old moving to Sydney, where you don't know anyone at all, you've got no family there either, it's a it's a big change and it is far away. It's something that you kind of don't really realize until you're over there, how far away you are from your family and, and your close-knit group of friends. So I go in there, I'm working nights and nights at Sky News is from 11 o'clock you get in and you don't finish until I think it's about 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. And what you're doing is you're putting together the news bulletin for the Qantas flight. So I'm not sure if they still are with Qantas because I haven't flown in a fair while <laughs> as because of COVID, but, but Qantas flights would have the bulletin from Sky News. So my job was to produce that bulletin. And for the first four or five weeks, it was a, a kind of a way to get your, um, dip your toe in the water as to what creating rundowns for news television was so it was creating your own standalone bulletin writing scripts for tv which is different from writing for radio or writing for the newspaper uh, and and it was tough but it was fun i enjoyed it you did four days on i think it was three days off or two days off and you know one of those days was lost lost because you were just trying to catch up on sleep it was really enjoyable i made a really good friend out of it during my first week a guy called cam Rowe, who's now at fox sports news and he taught me everything i needed to know in that first week and then for the next four weeks it was me on my own overnight but the issue there is that even though you got the three days off really you've only got two of those days to do anything most of the time they were midweek and so you couldn't really make much of a social life out of it. You could go and try and train at football, but you're, you're tired because you're, you're working shift and suddenly you're trying to run around playing footy or you're trying to play cricket and you're only getting to one training session a week. So you don't have, you know, the, uh, the benefits of playing a game on the weekend and sitting there with 10 other guys and, and talking. So making social connections was, was near on impossible, but I didn't mind that the people at, at Sky News were great. But then what happened about three months into my time at Sky News was they 
decided that I was good enough at my job to become uh, a broadcast lead. And a broadcast lead is the person who essentially leads three other producers to decide what the bulletin is. So it's your decision, what the bulletin is, what the headlines are, how the headlines read. Um, You are editing the scripts of the other three people. So here's a 24-year-old who's been there for three months, thrust into this position of semi-management given more responsibility, more pressure, not given any more pay. That's not be all and end all, but I can tell you in Sydney it is. <laughs> and then on on top of that, you're also managing people who have been there for upwards of you know, 12, 18 months. So you're managing personalities who are probably thinking, what's this upstart doing, taking a role that I kind of want or I think I'm better at? So there's a lot of pressure there. And, and emotionally, that, that's really difficult to take because you're trying to make friends in the workplace because you've got no other, nowhere else to make friends. Um, and you're also trying to do a really good job in an environment that if you uh, stuff up, they will let you know that you've stuffed up. And it's there for the 40,000 viewers at any one time and the people on Qantas flights to see. If there's a spelling mistake, they, it gets seen and, yeah, it gets read. Ryan, you have really painted this picture of this environment where, yeah, as a 24-year-old, that must be incredibly challenging. You hear lots of stories around the media and the, I guess, the lack of funding or the tightness of the, the budgets these days. Um, as you know, advertising budgets are, are, are tightened, mm. and, and there's there's probably more competition. So I guess highlights how that can create vulnerable situations for employees because there you are at 24, being thrust into a position. Sounds like there was not a lot of mentoring going on, and there was this particular cutthroat expectation, which we understand around media, especially around news media, where the the timeliness is 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 everything. I can understand how it was a really challenging situation, both professionally and personally Mm. for you. The other thing I'd like to ask also is, at any point in time, were you given any editorial direction to to follow as well? And again, the experience of a 24-year-old dealing with that at the same time as dealing with the personality and the the human resources Mm. um, situation. Be interested to know how both of those work together. Yeah, I found that's a question I've been asked quite often. You hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, editors and, and people are influenced by or producers are influenced by what the the higher ups want in a media organization. I didn't experience that personally. It was more of the pressure of getting the facts right. And that was something that I really enjoyed because from my perspective, my view of journalism is a very traditional one. You, you tell the truth, you're there to ask the right questions and you're the, the fifth estate, which is what you're trained as, as a journo. And I think for a lot of the part, uh, Sky News is, is, was at that stage, this is, you know, 20, end of 2015, early 2016, it was very good at that. But I started to feel the wheels turn and that's what really made me not enjoy my time. And I should clarify that it wasn't the work hours or anything like that. I don't want to sound like a one of those kids that is from the new generation that doesn't want to work hard. It was the change that that happened after about three or four months. And that was when I started to feel that there was a direction from the higher ups that we needed to take a specific angle in news coverage. And that was because there were always programs on Sky News, but the contributors started to change onto who the uh, on who was presenting those programs. So a big one being, and I'm sure you're, uh, you and, and everyone else listening to this will know the name Andrew Bolt, uh, who's a very conservative, controversial character uh, in the media. And he came on board as a contributor. 
And then uh, Peter Credlin came on as a contributor. Now, Peter Credlin was, I think he was the chief of staff for um, Tony Abbott and wasn't a very popular figure in the media, but then takes up this position in the media, uh, despite the fact she was critical uh, of the media and, and takes up a position in the media and starts spouting her ideals. And same thing with Andrew Bolt. And those ideals didn't match up with mine. And it didn't, and my ideals were that as a journalist and as a, a news station, you need to be balanced and fair in your reporting. When you have two people that are uh, essentially spokespeople for the owner of the station and are spouting some very conservative views, which I don't agree with, and you're talking about issues like refugees, immigration, and then on top of that, it was the same time as the Paris attacks. I don't, remember, don't know if you remember that as clearly yes. as I do, but the the attacks at the Bataclan theater, um, and there were you know hundreds of people got killed by Islamic extremists. And so they're talking about these issues, and they're talking about refugee issues. They're talking about issues to do with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And you'd look at the panel on these TV shows, and they're all white. They're all predominantly male. They're all from the same background, privately educated, where's the person who can explain from an Islamic background that what those atrocities were wasn't in line with the views or the actual beliefs of of Islamic people, especially Islamic Australians, because that's who needed representation in this, because they were under fire. Um, There were no people from uh, Indigenous or Torres Strait Islander backgrounds being able to have that voice, uh, you know, that ability to answer any of those kind of queries or or provide balance to the broadcast so that's what was challenging to me and that's what started to get the wheels turning that I wasn't comfortable in that workplace and in that environment because as a part of the programming and a part of the news coverage is you need to take those opinions and those comments made in programs and turn them into news but they're opinions So why is that something that then needs to lead a news bulletin or be even part of a news bulletin? Sure, it has its own place in programming, but if you're putting that that mouthpiece out there um, that's ultra-conservative, then where's the progressive voice? Where's the the thing that balances that out that allows both sides of the opinion to be presented? And and I'll clarify, I, I believe that everyone's entitled to their opinion. I don't think there's really a wrong opinion, but you need to be able to have the balance there so the viewers can determine for themselves which one they want to believe in. Uh, and that was never there. And my wife working in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander industries, it, it really challenged that that for me. And that's what started to make me go, I need to get out of this because I can see the, the direction that this channel's taking and I can't in all good conscience be a part of it. Ryan, you then mentioned that a friend of yours sent you a, a job application or a mm-hmm. job opportunity. Were you really actively looking to get out at that time or were you still thinking, oh, I've got to work through this? Even though you had these conflicts, both both journalistic conflicts, you know, prof- from a professional point of view, but also a moral point of view, were, were you grappling with this, oh, you know, I really do have to stick it out or did it just become untenable for you from a personal point of view? It slowly became that way, that it became untenable, but I think at about the seven, eight, month mark or even earlier i was like this this isn't going to last i can't continue this for my own mental well-being it wasn't making me depressed or anxious or anything like that but the the pressure's there and i wasn't enjoying sydney the way that i I thought i could enjoy sydney my partner uh, and now wife had just moved over and i couldn't really explore sydney with her in the way that i wanted to uh, because she was working full-time she was making great connections in the workplace and you know on her way to becoming a lawyer so 
I was kind of looking at that side as well and thinking I'm missing out on on things here that I don't want to miss out on. And so I, I hesitantly looked elsewhere and thought about what I wanted to do and had those discussions with with Sophie. And I think the traditional thing that you're always told, and especially my family, is that sticking with a job and, and when times are tough, you, you got to kind of work through it a little bit. And so that was in the back of my mind. I was also felt that I owed Sky News my service because they'd paid for me to relocate. I found out later when the job came up that part of my contract was that I had to get through 18 months before the relocation fees were considered repaid, essentially. Uh, so when the job ad came up and it was for a social media coordinator at the Giants, I just was like, I, I miss footy. And I was so involved in football in, in WA before I moved to Sydney, uh, worked um at East Freo Footy Club as the ground announcer. I'd been volunteering down there since I was about 10 years old, running the team store, going to games. Uh, and then on top of that, I was a <clears throat> Freo member, would go with my parents every weekend. I played footy growing up. I played it uh, at Willerton um, in their seniors in the Magoo's like fifth grade or <laughs> whatever it was, because I'm just a complete footy nuffy. And it was, it was everything. And it was a big part of my community, my social interaction. And I was missing that. That was a massive factor in why I wanted to to move and so when this job came up at a still a, a new club in the Giants with an opportunity to grow the game and spread the gospel of Australian rules footy to an area that has had exposure to it but it, it's not a footy heartland was just so tempting and I had the discussions with Soph took it uh you know put in an application I had a little bit of a connection at the club um just because I'd I'd been tweeting the whole of the 2016 season up until the point where I'd put the application in. I knew the chairman because he actually appeared on Sky News, a guy called Tony Shepherd, lovely, lovely guy who I would always have conversations with. And when I, you know, went through the process of applying and then got the job at the end, you know, one of my last shifts. So I was like, oh, Tony, I'll be seeing a lot more of you. I'm going to be at the club. And he was, you know, oh, great. Can't wait to have you down there. It's, you know, always good to get someone on board. So it, it felt right getting in there and having that interview was just the best thing and paying the $1,800 or whatever it was to to get out of Sky News, as much as it hurt the hip pocket, it was the best thing I ever did. It was just so good to to have that relief and to get back into to football in uh, in the industry. And then also I was able to get back into playing at a club locally in Sydney. So I just, yeah, I wasn't actively searching, but as fate would have it, something came up that was right in my wheelhouse and I, I had to take it. Would have been also an interesting scenario coming from a, football state in WA and you talked about East Fremantle at the waffle level and you know for listeners on Max's Island that's the state level so not even at the AFL level and you know we're so passionate about that level yet in Sydney you know there's effectively only two AFL clubs and um, you know rugby league is the I guess gets uh, 90% of the, Mm. the news headlines and so that would have been interesting going into an environment at GWS out in the Western suburbs, following something that you had experienced all your life in a, in a very high profile environment and potentially then going out there where I guess you were in your own little bubble. Yeah, you really were. Uh, and people who followed the Giants um, were very passionate because it was such a small and it still is a, a fairly small supporter base compared to other clubs. And you see that with the crowds that they get and, and that's a, a big challenge for the club. And But that was part of the beauty of it over my, how many years was I there in the end? I was about there about four and a half years. And the growth that I saw in that time was the best part of it. And that's why I went there because I knew that there was 
the opportunity to 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 be part of something bigger. So it wasn't just to be, you know, part of, oh, look, I've got got to work at an AFL club. I've been able to hang around footy players and all that stuff. That that wasn't it for me. The the thing that was biggest for me in being at the club and, and being part of that journey was to see more kids wearing Giants gear or even Swans gear out in public. Uh, and that was something that I loved because you'd see NRL gear or, or through the streets of Sydney and, you know, murals painted of uh, West Tigers on uh, Victoria Road and all that type of stuff. And then to see a kid walk down the street and they've got a Giants cap on, I'd always like turn to uh, my wife if we we're in Belmain or whatever, having lunch on the weekend, just go, look, look, look there's, there's another one. And so it, it, <laughs> it was, that was really cool. And even I think the first junior kind of not carnival but they did these junior club nights where a bunch of players go out to Hoxton Park which is in you know the middle of western sydney or they'd go to Blacktown International Sports Park and they'd have a host of teams come out there and the players would interact with the kids run some drills you know the standard stuff that you see across all clubs um the first one i went to it it, it wasn't a big turnout and i think i went there again about 3 or 4 years later after the giants had had that period of sustained success from 2016 to a you know the start of 2020 before COVID hit. And so I think we went in 2019 when, you know, it was middle of the year and the difference in the amount of kids that were there, I think it had doubled and and the intro, the actual engagement, the active engagement for the younger generation was massive because great team name, the parents might not be interested in footy, but the kids are. And that was the thing that was, that was amazing to see. And then as, as women's football became a thing in, uh, the start of 2017 with the AFLW season, the, the growth there was incredible. That was that was something I'll never forget. I think the best best way to describe it, I think I think the stats were something like AFL in Sydney grew by like seventy uh, percent over the course of those couple of years participation. Women's football in one year grew eighty percent in Western Sydney. It was the fastest growing sport. Women's football, Aussie rules, was the fastest growing sport in Sydney at the time. And the way that I saw that uh, a tangible uh, thing that I could see um, as a result of the work that the Giants were doing and what the AFL was doing and in getting into Western Sydney was the club I played for was called uh, Macquarie University, and that's. Uh, Kind of up a North Shore uh, would be the best way to describe it, just north of North Sydney. And so I was playing there in the first year I was there. They'd had a, a really good tradition with women's football. They had had a team since about 2005, I think it was. Um, and in you know middle of 2016 uh, at training, you'd have uh, you know 15 girls rock up. They'd scrounge together 20 players each weekend and get a game. When AFLW started, the start of that preseason, the 2016 November period, you saw, you know, those regular 20 girls rock up for preseason training at a tick over. You get maybe one or two would bring a friend. AFLW starts. And by the start of the 2018 season, they had to add a second team. That was just at Macquarie Uni, which isn't a big club. And then from 2018 onwards, there were uh, you know, I think there were about seven or eight women's clubs in the Premier Division of Sydney. I think it's expanded to 10. Each of those clubs have at least two or three teams each. So the expansion was just amazing to see that over the time. And, and to know that, yes, yeah, growing women's football is, is one thing, but then to know that it's growing football in general was another. And that was the best part of being uh, part of the club. It, it was a really tight-knit space because you are in 
almost an exclusive cult-like kind of thing is the best way to put it because you're all there with the same passion and the same energy. You all want to achieve the same thing, which is your team to win a premiership and footy to grow in Western Sydney. So it, it was a really special place to be and especially when they had that that period of success. And I think even though there wasn't a premiership, it was a successful period of, of the club's timeline. Those three years were just incredible to be a part of. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad I, I made the move and uh, to be a part of that, that period and, and watch the club grow and watch the, the game grow in, in a part of Australia that is just not AFL oriented was, was awesome to watch. It was so cool. We talk about passion in the work that you do. It's obviously, you know, AFL, so so you're so passionate about it, but I'm really impressed that it wasn't just a job for you and it wasn't just about making your professional success with GWS, but it was also this fascination with growing the game in general. And your, your reflection on focusing on AFLW and I think the general public or perhaps some of the more traditional AFL, AFL Mm. viewers and supporters miss the point of AFLW and whilst the standard is is improving and you know that's the one thing that expansion probably dilutes a little bit and takes a while for that to build up that's not necessarily the total story the total story is what you see at club level mm. i know that my local junior football ground on a sunday morning after the auskick kids have gone the oval split into two and they have two games of AFLW for girls that are probably between seven and 12 years old. Mm. It's, it's incredible the volume. It's, it's, it's huge. And that's yep. the benefit of that will be in 20 years' time. Oh, and that's, that's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head, Tony. It's not about now. And I think that's what the general public hasn't understood. And, and the women's competition at a national level has now been going for, what are we into, season seven, I think, coming up. Uh, this year uh, or later on this year, the players that have started to join through the drafts this year are reaping the benefits of what has come before them from a national perspective. And we, over the next five years, the standard is going to lift because you have girls that when the competition started were 10 or 11 who are now at draft age, who have, instead of having maybe two two years of junior footy before they had to give up the game uh, and, and go and play something else, or they'd been attracted from another sport at 25 to finally give footy a go because they can see a future in it. The girls that are coming through now at draft age, that traditional draft age of 18, have now had seven years plus of junior pathway programs. What that does from a football IQ, IP knowledge of the game and skills is incredible. And that's why we're seeing some of the best players in the competition being that 20, 21, 22 bracket because they've had longer playing the game at a high level. So the Madison Prasparkas, who I think what she win a competition best and fairest at 21, it's not because mm. everyone else around her is bad. It's because she's had exposure to football from the very get-go and there's been a, a pathway for her from the age of Auskick through to 18, 19 and now being able to be a senior player. So that that was something that uh, that captured my imagination very early, especially being around the women's team at the Giants. It, it became a passion of mine. I ended up coaching in, in Sydney and that's what I told a lot of people who were critical of women's football when it was, you know, burst upon the national stages it's not about now and if you're going to complain about it instead of complaining about it why don't you go and contribute 
you know, if you think that the skills of the girls aren't good enough and you think you're that good and you could, you know, you hear the, the conversations in pubs, I'm sure you've heard them, Tony, mm. from, you know, people probably more around your age bracket that, yeah, oh, they shouldn't be playing footy or they're going to get hurt or their skills are deplorable, all that type of stuff. Well, if you've had experience in football, why not go and be a resource to them rather than being someone who is sucking and sapping the energy out of them and making them feel like they're not of value. So that was why I went and coached footy because I, I was saying that to people and I was like, well, I'm not actioning that. So that I was like, well, how can I contribute to Mac uni? I'd stopped playing after badly breaking my arm. I wanted to get back involved at club level. And so I went, okay, well, there's a women's program there. They've got two teams. What can I do to help out? Do you need an assistant coach? Do you need a runner on the weekend? Do you need someone just to kick footies or whatever it may be? And they were like, well, we actually need a coach because we, <laughs> we've only got, <laughs> we've only got you know, three across the club. So I ended up being a, a co-coach in that, that first year. But it, like I said, you hit the nail on the head. It's not, it's not about the now. It's another five years away before we start getting to the uh, position that we see higher scores, uh, better quality of football. But the thing that I think, a lot of people forget with AFLW, they're playing on the same size ground as the men. They're playing with two less players per side because apparently congestion is a problem in the women's game. Let me give you a, a little hint. It's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's worse in the men's game at times. So they're having to have 16 players run the same distance that is expected of the men and cover the same amount of ground as the men. They're paid less, so they have to have full-time jobs in the meantime. So they can't just sit there working on their craft of kicking and handballing and marking all day long like the boys can. They're playing with a ball that is a size smaller than the men's. So what that actually does is it impacts the accuracy of your kick. You could have the best ball drop. You could over 15 meters hit a target nine times out of 10, but suddenly you stretch that 25, 30 meters and you're trying to kick something that does not have the weight to carry through the conditions. So if it's windy, good luck being accurate with your kicking. That's why you see um, scores quite often in AFLW that are lopsided um, behinds to goals because it's so much harder to propel that ball. And people go, oh, girls can't kick as, as far as men. Well, you go and take a women's footy and you try and kick it and then you compare it to a men's size five football, you're going to kick the size five a lot further because it has the weight behind it. So there's there's those elements, uh, two less players on a, on a field that's exactly the same size. And they've had the disadvantage of for pretty much 100 years not being given the same opportunities as men to play Australian rules football. So that that's where you, what you've got to start reminding yourself. And that'll change as the years go on. It'll get better. Rules get tweaked to help those scores lift, the abilities of players lift. And I think we'll see, you know, more tweaks as the years go on. But I'm so excited to see where it's going to go. And, and one thing that I loved, like it was, uh, it's one of my favorite memories from my whole time in Sydney was, you know, as I said at the start of when I was at the Giants, I was, I was pumped about seeing, you know, a kid wearing a Giants hat or a, someone with a, membership sticker that you take for granted over here on on the back of a car it was a big deal to see him out in the wild in sydney but women playing football was was another thing so one of my favorite memories was uh, we're at a macquarie park's a massive shopping center in sydney i'm sitting there and eating lunch with my wife and this girl a little girl has rocked up with her two sisters to have lunch at a table nearby and they've got a, a bag from i think it must have been rebel sport or a sports store or whatever it was and she's reached into the bag and she's pulled out a brand new Sharon and she'd be like 10 or 12. And she's so excited by this football. And it was exactly how I felt when I used to get a brand new footy as a kid. So there was that element of, oh, like, how good's that? But it was also, 
It wasn't an NFL ball, uh, an RL ball. It was an AFL ball in the middle of Sydney. And this girl now has the opportunity to not just kick that around for fun with their brothers or not just kick it around. And, you know, when they get to 13 years old, they have to go and pursue another sport. She can take that ball and that start and that excitement could see her become an elite level player for the Swans or for the Giants or for whoever it is in the competition. It was like, that's exactly what AFLW is all about. It's about that girl having that excitement to then also sit there at a game and go, I can be that one day. Whereas 20 years ago, they didn't. And I I just, that was for me, it was like, oh, we're we're turning the corner here. This is where it's changing. And we're going to have those guys that are going to detract from it forever and a day. But eventually they'll be drowned out by the people that support it. And I think we're getting to that point and it's just brilliant. I'm so excited to see where it goes for the next 10, 15 years. Ryan, I think, is it Nicole Livingston's the CEO of AFLW? Yeah, she is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's got, um, she needs to look over her shoulder because I can see you coming for, for <laughs> no, her job. No, no. <laughs> very soon. I, no, that's, uh, you know, I think definitely women's sport <clears throat> needs male allies in, in every way possible. But I think women's sport, as much as it needs men's allies, it needs women to guide it because I think that's that's the important thing. There's not enough women's coaches. The opportunities need to be there for females within football generally. Uh, but if it's coming to the governance of a, of a women's league, it doesn't mean like you go, oh, no, no men need to be involved. Absolutely. It needs to be fair and balanced. So if there's if there's a, a person coming through that that is, you know, ready to be the next CEO of AFLW and they're a man or a woman, then so be it. As long as I think the key thing is they have the, the game's best interest at heart, at heart and they have the interest of uh, the players and the participants first and foremost. So that that's that's all I care about. And I think having spoken to the players that I, I'd worked with at the Giants, that's what they wanted. They wanted to be heard. They want to have a voice and they want to make sure that the right person's there championing what they need to get done to improve as, as individuals, but to improve um, from a collective point of view. Ryan, we need to wind up this really interesting chat. Thanks so much for being on the island. I know that you have embarked on a uh, a new career in international content creation for uh, an online space. Um, perhaps you can give us a quick synopsis of, of what that's involving and particularly being based in Perth and the work that you're doing you know, across the globe um, just as we wind up. Yeah. So I'm working now with an organization called Optimize Mind Performance, and we are a mental skills training app. So we're, we're multifaceted. We've got a, a business to business and a business to customer um, sides to our platform. So you can check us out, optimizemindperformance.com. And we are providing athletes across the world with the opportunity to access content from the world's leading sports psychologists to help improve their motivation, their confidence, their concentration. If they've got the yips, yeah. So if you're a golfer out there, I'm pretty sure you'd have a few avid golfers listening um, and you, you may be struggling with your part, download the app, have a listen to our content from a, a, a psychologist from the UK, a guy called Dr. Mike Rotherham. He has done a PhD in the yips. So if you want to know how to conquer the yips, you're not going to get many better people than someone who's spent years researching it. So that, that's what we are. We've got um, in you know an office in Boston. That's where we're based out of. We've got uh, the app is currently trialing with Texas Uni in, in Austin, which is a massive organization, uh, Washington University in Seattle, 
uh, Lake Erie College as well. And we've got a couple of high schools signed up to use it in the States too. So uh, we're just trying to allow athletes to reach their full potential. And, and part of reaching their full potential is not just to be physically prepared, but it's to be mentally prepared. The best top line way I can describe it is we're like Carmel Headspace for athletes. Um, and we're there to try and um, allow them to get everything out of their potential that they possibly can and and deal with confidence and motivation issues when they arise and uh, have access that they otherwise might not have through their their platform because of um you know funding for themselves or for their their school or yeah whatever their financial situation is it's it's wholly accessible 24 hours a day and they can listen to that content so my job uh, is to help script that content, work with the psychologists to get their points across in a in a way that's concise and put it onto the app and, and do social media. And I'm a bit of a dog's body at the moment. So uh, we're, we're really small. We are a startup. There's only three and a half people working in the organization, but we're, we're going to be growing pretty soon. I'm pretty bullish about how we're going to be growing over the next uh, 12 months. Thanks for that, Ryan. Look forward to following the progress. Uh, I've downloaded the app, so I'll be um, trying it out, and but certainly following the progress in general of the of the organisation. And, and as you say, it's a startup, and so hopefully growth will be really, really quick and and effective. Ryan, thanks for being on the island. Love the story of following your, I guess, a professional career and then ending up at a place where you were able to not only ply that career, but do it in a way that was uh, satisfied your passion, satisfied what was your soul, what was inside you around AFL. And it was probably a great period of your life that I'm sure is um, going to continue to kickstart your career and um, and good luck with the, the new venture. And uh, thanks for being on the island. Thanks very much, Tony. Um, do I need to get a ferry or is it a swim back? You've got to swim back, mate. Okay. <laughs> thanks very much, Tony. Spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur. Oh, work and no play. And how, how it had turned out this way. He told me his plan a short term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track.
every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone, and 